0: Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On The Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On The Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, it's Dan here. We have a great episode of OK Computer for you this week. Katie, Packy, and I had the pleasure of sitting down with O1 Advisors Adam Bain. Adam is the former COO of Twitter and sits on the board of Virgin Galactic and Open Door. It was a lot of fun hearing Katie and Adam reminisce about their time together at Twitter and their careers in venture, while Packy and Adam drill down on some Web3 investment themes while also digging into Katie's investments in climate tech. And last but not least, our friend and contributor, Cleo Abram, has a huge announcement. So stick around. It's going to be a good one. Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this, guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking.
1: Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use
0: app. Well, I got
1: to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just
0: go to current.com
1: slash OK, OKAY, and download the app. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. All right,
0: this is OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm here with my co-host, Katie Stanton. Hi, Katie. How are you?
1: I'm
2: great. How are you, Dan?
0: I'm doing well. So we have a very special guest. This is somebody that you have history with. You go back with. You guys spent nearly the same tenure at Twitter. His name is Adam Bain. Adam Bain. How are you, bud? Hey, Dan. Hey, Katie. Hey, Adam. So real quickly, Adam is an investor at O1 Advisors. He is a partner with Dick Costolo, who is also a former colleague of yours, former CEO of Twitter. Adam, you left in 2016. Katie, you also left in 16. What happened to Twitter in 2016? It was like a brain drain or something like that, huh?
2: It was time to move on. We did what we could. We built the company or helped build the company. There's a time for everyone to come. There's a time for everyone to leave.
0: It's really interesting, Adam. I was listening to Kara Swisher, a friend of all of ours, on her podcast Sway last week. She referred to you as the nicest man in tech. Now, I know that you've heard that a bit. I have to say this because I'm going to hand over the reins to Katie here. Getting to know Katie over the last year, she is easily the nicest woman in tech. So Katie, all yours here, sister.
2: It is true. I can vouch that Adam Bean is so nice. And if you follow the hashtag on Twitter, hashtag Adam Bain is so nice, which I think I might be one of the earliest adopters of that. It is true. You'll find all kinds of treasures in there pictures and flames and stories and anecdotes. So super excited and honored to be here talking to Adam. Let's dive in. You ready?
3: I'm ready. Actually, I'll give you, Dan, I'll give you a quick Katie story before we dive in. Okay. Uh So Katie and I were together for a bunch of years. Katie and I, our first trip, I think, went overseas to the UK to do some hiring and to launch Twitter UK. And Katie is probably one of the most connected human beings ever, arranges all these meetings in case. So she walks us in to the, at the time, mayor of London, Boris Johnson. We go and do a bunch of meetings with athletes and celebrities. And then she lines up and gets us a audience at number 10 Downing Street. you remember this, Katie?
2: I do, yeah.
3: And so the meeting essentially was to meet with some of the folks in government in the UK as a way to say, hey, we're here, we're opening up an office, we're going to be doing a bunch of hiring, let's talk a little bit about Twitter. In the middle of the meeting, who walks in but the prime minister. And so Katie is responsible for lining up, at least for me, my first ever head of state meeting. It was David Cameron, right? He came in and spent over an hour with us, which was pretty stellar. Katie is pretty connected. Katie, I did a little sleuthing on Twitter and
0: I see there was an interview that you hosted with Hillary Clinton. There is a picture on your Twitter bio with Joe Biden, now President Joe Biden. And then I'm sure there's got to be an Obama picture somewhere lying around there, huh?
2: Somewhere, somewhere. But I will also add to that, Trevor, it was really funny. I think the other two moments that I thought were pretty memorable were when we did meet Boris Johnson and he kept asking us if there was going to be a movie like The Social Network about Twitter one day. And we said, well, probably, and who would play you? And he said,
4: oh, Brad Pitt, of course. <laughs> so <laughs>
2: hard to see that. And then the other part, this was the "want, want" part, was that I remember walking on the plane, we boarded the plane and we were cattle class way in the back middle seats for this red eye. And we were scheduled to go straight to meetings upon landing. And we walked <laughs> past first class. And it's like all Facebook executives drinking champagne. <laughs> oh. I was like, oh, one day that'll be us.
0: Yeah, they were plotting to ruin democracy where you guys were trying to keep it fair and open.
2: That is right. They were on their way.
0: What did you guys call it? The town square or so.
2: The town hall? Yeah, town square. That's right. Yeah, town square. But I think that's now been co-opted by Parlor. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, mind, it says the town square.
3: The other thing that I remember about that David Cameron meeting is at the very end of the meeting, then he leaves and we're still hanging out before we leave. And it's been now a couple of hours, so I need to go to the bathroom. So I excuse myself from this conference room and I leave the conference room and start walking around the hallways of number 10 downing. And it's basically set up as for my first time ever being there. I think Katie's been there a bunch, but it's set up like a house. And so I'm walking down the hallway, literally trying doors to try and find a bathroom because it's not labeled. I finally jiggle a doorknob and open up a door and it ends up being a restroom. And so I go in and I quickly go to the bathroom and I go to wash my hands and there is a sign on the wall that I see as I'm washing my hands that says, That this room is reserved for the queen when she's in the building. (laughs) And so since she wasn't there, I made quick use of it and I used the Queen's bathroom in number ten. So let me ask you guys this though. When you guys were at Twitter at
0: a period of absolute hyper growth. And Adam, you and I have talked about this in the past. I don't know if there's ever been another company that's gone from basically zero to two billion dollars in revenues. I know, Adam, you were in charge with revenue. You were in charge with revenue, Katie. You were overseeing build out internationally. That's a just that trip that you're just talking about. Have you guys ever seen anything like that since when you think about that move to one billion, then two billion that quickly? And then where is the path forward? Because when I think about a Twitter, I think about a Snap, I think about a Pinterest. These were companies that all grow very quickly based on ad revenue, but there's still a small percentage combined of let's say the big behemoths, whether it be Google, that whether it be Facebook. I just love for you guys to reflect a little bit about that and then where you think the path forward is to get to
3: a 10 and a $20 billion revenue company. Yeah, I mean, we went from zero to a billion faster than almost any other consumer internet company, and then a billion to two billion faster than almost anyone. I think only Google, Amazon, and Facebook got there slightly faster to two billion than Twitter. That's The starting point is when Twitter first started hiring a team to go to market. All of this was in the pre-Web3 age. The most recent example, though it's more GMV maybe and not revenue, is OpenSea and just the the massive scale that OpenSea has driven in a, in a fairly short amount of time. Katie, what were some of your impressions now when seeing being
0: part of that a revenue growth there and how you think about these consumer ad-based models scaling going forward?
2: First of all, Adam and team get the credit for the revenue growth at Twitter and going from, but when Adam joined, I think there were maybe $10,000 in revenue at the time at Twitter and going from zero to billions in a, in a quick period of time is really you know his team and the revenue team at Twitter and the engineering team at Twitter that just set everything up for success. I think the second thing, so first it's execution. Second, it's scale and looking at the global markets and making sure that you build the right infrastructure around the world to be able to capture your organic growth that Twitter was seeing at that time. So seeing a lot of growth from really important markets like Brazil and France, UK, Japan. Japan was the first market that we actually had employees in outside the United States. Japan is so interesting because it's such a winner take all. And so that was super fun as well. We have some other stories there too, maybe for another podcast. You know, it's execution, it's growth, building a product that people love and where advertisers want to reach those customers. So it was really a job of a lifetime. And we were both so lucky to have worked there at such a fun time, such an interesting time. And I still think that Twitter is the pulse of the planet and is where you can get any of your real-time news. We're both on here all day long. (laughs) So it's been super fun. So, Adam and I share a fun fact that we're originally both from the Midwest. I was born in Erie, PA, and Adam is from Cleveland. And even though I've known you for a long time, I don't think I really know your full story of the kid from Cleveland. And how did you go from building cleveland.com to running these media <laughs> empires in Los Angeles and Silicon Valley?
3: Yeah, well, always remember the Erie, PA signs on the Cleveland freeways. I grew up in the Midwest. I. Went to school actually for journalism and graduated with a journalism degree. And I was one of the first journalism-focused majors out that also had a computer science focus. And so when I I moved back to Cleveland and got a gig at the Cleveland Plain Dealer, helping start the digital division for the Plain Dealer, which is called cleveland.com, built the first website for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and did some of the first overall video webcasts Now I'm super dating myself uh, (laughs) on the internet for the Rock Hall induction ceremony. And then I got a gig in LA, working for the LA Times, helping in the sports side of the business, helping Times go digital in sports. And then quickly, after about a year or two there, realized that video really was going to be the focus of a lot of content production. And... The LA Times didn't have any video assets. And so I switched over to run foxsports.com. And so I was in the sports business for about 13 years. And actually I was running product engineering teams for most of my time there. So I started in the business running product teams. I realized through most of my time there that I was a pretty lousy product manager. And I made kind of a move over to the business side and started running business teams. I was dangerous, I think, because I knew a little bit my way around product and even some engineering. We bought MySpace back then. And so in a true, I don't know if that's web zero or 1.0 or 2.0, but I was part of the team that acquired MySpace. And then I got super excited about how MySpace was going to generate revenue. And so... I took a team to go focus on that. One thing led to another. In 2010, the team at Twitter decided that it was time to go begin the process of monetization. And they came calling. And while well, it took me a, a little bit to get there, I joined in 2010. And when I joined, I sat down at my desk and the person I was sitting right next to was Katie Stan.
2: Lucky me. And actually, I have a very important question because literally five people have claimed credit for getting you the job at Twitter. <laughs> Do you want to clear this uh, confusion once and for all?
3: Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I want every every person who helped me get my job back then uh, feel special.
2: It's a true story. I know so many people are like, oh yeah, I told Dick that he, he had to hire Adam. Oh no, I <laughs> moved, like Adam to Peter Fenton. So many uh, <laughs> uh, success authors there. So now you're a VC. And it's obviously part of the job to do three things. The first is to always wear a Patagonia vest, um, which I don't see now, but we're on a podcast. (laughs) Second is that you have to become an expert in all material subjects. So on COVID, on politics, on inflation. And then the third thing is to tweet or at least talk in a podcast about your New Year's prediction. So what are your biggest trends for 2022?
3: Oh, Oh, boy. One is we banned puffy vests at 01 <laughs> advisors <laughs> and we're we're uh, decidedly more operator centric than we are VC centric, but that won't stop me in this case. So your questions trends for 2022? Well, I'll start with the first one, which is we're living in pandemic times right now, and since it's in vogue to be VC and also to have uh, pontification around the pandemic, then uh, that won't stop me. My prediction is, and hopefully it's an optimistic one, that Omicron fades out this spring. One legacy that it leaves us with is home testing. The U.S., I think, woefully failed on getting cheap antigen tests out to the overall population. But even though through that failure, we are all now familiar with how to do it. And my prediction is that there will be a completely new wave of in-home testing that comes. It's going to be a lot cheaper, and it's going to be at a higher level. So not just going to be antigen, but it's actually going to be PCR-like. And what we're going to find is that testing is going to come in super handy for all kinds of health situations, not just for COVID, which right now is the priority, or the flu, but it's going to be bring a huge revolution in digital health. And we're going to look back at 2022 as the beginning of this movement for real at scale and intelligent home testing that's gonna change how we overall experience the health system.
2: I totally agree. I mean, I was talking to a friend a week ago and this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but I feel like I probably have spent as much on COVID tests as I did on f- fertility treatments. <laughs> like. <laughs> insane, especially if you're traveling, you need to get it quickly. You need to get a PCR. And it's just really insane. And and, I mean, there are a bunch of providers now. We talked earlier about some of them like Q, Detect, Color. Who are the other winners in that space, do you think?
3: I have some personal experience with Detect.com. Founder and creator is scientist that's been awarded the National Medal for Technology It's an absolutely incredible tech. It's 50 times more accurate than antigen. But the thing that's really interesting to me about it is that the technology is applicable not just to COVID, but ultimately over the long term, there are a number of health situations that can be picked up and analyzed through this same sort of technology. And so whether it be any various levels of disease, which ultimately can be tested through a home test. And so I think to me, that's what's really exciting is we already saw the movement of telehealth, which really was spurred on by COVID in particular. But I think that home testing is actually going to take this even, even further.
0: Katie, some of the stuff that you're focused on in climate tech, that's the one when you think about we've been dealing with this health. Well, actually, your barbell approach between health tech and climate tech, it seems like there's so much that should be focused there. And I'm just curious, do you have any predictions about 2022? And is this the year that people get serious about climate tech and health tech?
2: My big prediction for 2022, now that I'm a big girl VC as well, <laughs> is, <laughs> is, is I look at climate as our most urgent problem and our most urgent opportunity. And it's not a nice to have, it's a must have. I live in Boulder, Colorado, and I've been here for a year and a half, and I've witnessed two wildfires, both from our house. And it is urgent, it is local, it is everywhere. And climate tech isn't a particular vertical, in our opinion, it is more of a retooling of our entire economy, the way that we buy, the way that we shop, the way that we build, the way that we serve. And so I think it was Larry Flank who said something like, the next 1,000 unicorns are going to be in climate. And I believe that. So we're really excited about the opportunities there. It's really hard at the stage where we invest, which is seed, um, because it is so high beta and risky, but we're really excited by the opportunity ahead. The other category that I wanted to ask you about where we're seeing a lot of people excited is in crypto and Web3. And we have a mutual friend and former colleague named Jack Dorsey, who has a lot of opinions on Web3. And I have to say... I'm a big fan of the new, new Jack on Twitter, who has a lot to say.
3: Unchained.
2: <laughs> Unchained. So yeah, we're, we're seeing a fun version and it's fun to see these conversations and debates happen on the platform, obviously. So curious, Adam, your take on Web3, if you see it as the big movement that many of our VC colleagues and founders do as well.
3: Oh, I think it's super compelling as a concept. A bunch of the work so far has been in DeFi. So again, going back to fintech, if fintech, in my view, in 2021, in the private markets from a VC standpoint, was the most invested category. And I think in 2022, it's going to continue that. The interesting thing about DeFi is it really helps wreck and ruin all of that, or at least innovate on all that in a completely different way. That said, it's not super clean yet some of the problems with the work in web3 is at times it is slower it's more expensive it's not from a processing standpoint it's actually not the most economic or or quick and so there's a interesting duality of the opportunity of the future versus the reality of of where we're here right now there was a really interesting take describing recently all of the advancements that's been made with cloud And then DeFi and and a bunch of things that are happening on the blockchain, which are kind of counters to that, but aren't faster and aren't cheaper yet. It's funny, you know, from
0: somebody who's in finance and has been there for more than a couple decades, I'm really curious. I love to see any sort of tech solution that looks to disintermediate existing processes and make it faster and cheaper or whatever. And when I think of a lot of DeFi, when I read these long blog posts from some geniuses, I think to myself, man, first of all, I just broke my brain just trying to figure out how to do this. A. And then B, it's like, oh my goodness, they are literally trying to recreate the complexity of Wall Street as it exists right now or lending or something like that. And I'm not sure that's needed. And you hear this all the time about crypto or, or blockchain-based Products that sometimes it's a problem looking for a solution. And I'm just curious, Adam, are you guys leaning in? I mean, Web3, and we're going to have Packy come on in a few minutes. And we're going to talk about this a little more here. You know, we had a guest on last week, Tom Lee of FunStrat, who's been following the space very closely for five years. In some ways, I think he's really legitimized a lot of these DeFi among a Wall Street sort of community. And he said, and a lot of people see this, and he's full on crypto guy. He said, Eh, it's a bit of a marketing thing. And that's kind of what Jack's saying. And I think that's what your question was also, Cutie, yeah. a little bit alluding to the fact that Jack's like, eh, this is just buzzword. It's just a bunch of nonsense.
3: The thing that has 2021 in the Web3 space is very closely aligned actually with NFTs more than anything. At least that's what the end consumer felt that was greatest. I think if you look at even literally today, what's happened in the NFT space There's been a lot of work around games and gaming, which I think from a trend or a focus for next year, my view is that this trend around game and gaming and how it interacts or relates with the NFT space will continue to accelerate. And that my view is that either most of the top PFP NFTs will have some sort of game attached to it, or the traditional game manufacturers or publishers will also attempt to bring NFTs into the game, some not successfully. The communities of these traditional gaming players may actually push back and leading to an interesting split in the market between games that are enabled with tradable items and and those whose publishers decide not to go there.
0: All right. We're going to talk a lot more about gaming, NFTs, crypto with our co-host Paki McCormick when he hops on in just a few minutes. But Katie, you have a speed round of questions for Adam. Let's do it.
2: All right, let's go. All right, Bane, does Mark Andreessen block you on Twitter?
3: <laughs> Blockman? no. Does he block people on Twitter? I haven't noticed.
2: <laughs> Good answer. All right, you're on the board of Virgin Galactic. Are you going out of space?
3: Yes, I can't wait. In fact, I bought a ticket and I am waiting in line like the rest of the ticket holders. What's your number? I'm 602.
2: Oh, okay, great. Aside from all of us, who's your favorite person to follow on Twitter?
3: Oh... Uh phone a friend packing no wait, uh wait, you said not, <laughs> not all of us uh, pass i'll let me come back to it
2: <laughs> okay, valuations in twenty twenty two going up, going down, staying the same,
3: going up, but it they shouldn't
2: uh oh, all right, do you still go to the warriors games with snoop dogg
3: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't it was snoop dogg and e forty I actually didn't go with them specifically, but I was sitting next to them, and uh. E40 when he learned that I was working in tech, had me doing tech support on his iPhone for half the game. <laughs> Amazing. Okay.
2: And uh, last question, have you gotten COVID yet? And did you know that Dan Nathan gave me COVID? Last oh,
3: month? man. I
0: did not give her COVID.
2: <laughs> did Dan Nathan give you COVID? He totally gave me COVID. Oh, damn. <laughs>
0: Adam, we were podcasting and then we had just a little libations afterwards. You know, it was that good of a podcast.
2: We had our families together. We thought we had taken tests prior. It was all negative, but oh well. All
0: right. So Adam is going to outer space. That's pretty exciting. Learned a lot about Adam there. All right, Katie, Adam, stick around. When we come back, Packy McCormick of Not Boring is going to join us. We're going to dig a little deeper into Web3.
1: Cross Riverbank member FDIC. All right, I'm back with Katie Stanton, our guest Adam Bain, and now our other
0: co host, Packy McCormick. Packy, welcome. You had a heck of a day. Tell us about it. What happened today? So, today,
5: so I've, I've been investing out of Not Boring Capital Fund 2 for about a quarter now, but today announced it, opened it up, went 506C, and opened up access to not boring readers. And so far, I think we're 13 hours right now post sending that email and 999 Not Boring readers have submitted $58 million in interest to VLPs in the fund. So a good day, power of the internet, and thank the Lord for those kind, kind people at AngelList who are going to help manage all of this.
0: Congrats, bud. That's great. It's going to be a huge 2022. And I know that you and Adam first had a conversation maybe about a year ago. You might have been talking about some trends in tech, but I wonder, Packy, I wonder if you guys were as focused on Web3 as you are right now and as Adam seems to be very interested in a lot of just the kind of interesting things going on there.
5: I keep breaking the rules on this this podcast. We're still figuring all this out. I'm going to break the fourth wall. I was actually listening in. <laughs> and I can't believe that you didn't say Turner Novak, the guy who introduced us as your favorite ah, Twitter follow. I was going to say Turner Novak. <laughs> perfect. Perfect answer. But yeah, I think when we met a little less than a year ago, I think very, very little of
3: our conversation
5: was about Web3. What What got
3: you into it? What got me into it? My entry point actually was through NFTs. And so I started spending a bunch of time in the Discord communities. And I just, frankly, got super enamored with this mix of content that was happening, the community and the kind of commerce of it all. So the trading, the financial market piece of it. But the communities, the Discords, are really what I found fascinating. So you had these explosion of people who would never have met in real life or even online, but have been thrown into this community together and instantly become fast friends. I spent a bunch of time in Discord communities and then started minting and buying a a bunch of assets. And as a result, got super interested in it in terms of what it potentially could do. And that led to moving outside of just NFTs into other Web3 work. What's your favorite NFT
5: project? game like is there something that you're just particularly drawn to or is it like people say the blockchain is what i'm into is it like the nft technology at the high level
3: i think the whole concept of of nfts just overall super interesting it reminds me of there's like a ton of analogies of it but my favorite one actually is it's like buying license plates in dubai (laughs) you guys know about do you know this you can you can literally actually in dubai and many other countries across the world You can actually buy, sell, and trade the license plate that you have from the government. And there's actually a bunch of social status in this as well. The less numbers or letters that you have in your license plate, the higher status you get. I think Sheikh Mohammed, who's the prime minister of the UAE and the ruler of Dubai, rolls around his G-wagon with plate number one, as he should. Some guy spent $9 million on plate number five. And then back in 2021, so last year, someone bought plate number nine for $10 million at a charity auction. By the way, a couple of years ago, somebody, I think, scored a single digit plate, like plate number four at an auction, but now is facing jail time because the check that he wrote bounced for insufficient funds. Which
5: wouldn't happen on the blockchain, right? Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't happen on the blockchain. <laughs> So you're saying Bitcoin fixes it? Bitcoin, Bitcoin fixes it. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Say it. Say the words. But let me ask you guys this, though. Are you are you starting to see a little discord in the discords? I have not figured out how to follow some of these discords. I've been doing a lot of the Twitter spaces. It's a little bit more user friendly for me here. I've just been noticed board apes are racist or OpenSea is too centralized. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here right now. And, and you guys might tell me as early tech investors or, or former operators and big platforms like this, that maybe this is pretty common here. But it Really seems like this is starting to bubble up a little bit. And then the other thing I would just say is, as we're now in the throes of a crypto sell off, a proper crypto sell off where Bitcoin was down 40% from its recent highs in November, I think people are starting to realize that these NFTs, specifically the PFPs, they are illiquid. They are, whether you like it or not, whether you love the community, whether you love the mission, whether you love the art, they are financial instruments. And that's something that I think is just dawning on a lot of people who took their very liquid ETH. That they might have had big gains or other altcoins and they moved them into something else that they thought that they loved. And now there's a little discord in the discord. How's that? That was beautifully said. This is a plug for something that I'm not an investor in nothing, but
5: I saw today and played with it for the first time. It was pretty incredible to your point on kind of liquidity versus illiquidity. There's something called Glass, which is trying to be a little bit of a YouTube for web three. Today, they released a new protocol that essentially is an automated market maker for NFTs, So you can sell your NFT and buy your NFT into the protocol. When you sell, it goes down a tiny bit. When you buy, it goes up a tiny bit, but there's always liquidity for your NFT. I thought that was really interesting. And I flipped one from, I think, 0.08 to 0.44. So I love this thing so far. It's been great. I'd love to hear Adam's thoughts on this. I frankly, like I don't care very much about decentralization I care about decentralization does and the fact that if you're baking finance into everything and try you know like, and really kind of financializing the whole system, not having a central party controlling that and extracting value from that it's a very good thing but otherwise, I don't personally think that's the thing that kind of has drawn me to to web3 and so I thought that whole conversation was really interesting and probably the most well written critique of web3 but I just didn't find it that compelling because that's not the thing that's drawn me to the space but I'd love to hear Adam's thoughts.
3: The critique is essentially that there are some central choke points for example with OpenSea and therefore that it's not really a fully distributed it's sort of an imposter it's not fully distributed. That is absolutely the case. There are other more distributed marketplaces or the ways to make trades it just so happens that in order to handle especially some of the problems that exist in marketplaces or anything when people get together online, right now that centralization has been the solution. Um, It may not always be that way. In fact, there are a number of distributed, say, Twitter projects, but actually it may be that the best version of this may come from Twitter itself, the Blue Sky Initiative, which really is about bringing filters And other ways to essentially follow and or block in a more distributed way, so that it's not actually Twitter doing the work to filter, but it's actually the user selectively deciding what filters they want to bring in, and those filters are actually created and controlled by the community itself.
5: Since we're on the subject of Twitter and Web three, what is your take on the Jack full Bitcoin Maxi full anti Web three? position? Was Blue Sky trying to be built on top of Bitcoin? Like, How is that you know, cognitive dissonance working while Jack was running Twitter, pro-Bitcoin, anti-everything else, and trying to build a decentralized version of Twitter? Give me your take on the whole
3: thing as someone who's clearly not at Twitter anymore. I think that the work at Blue Sky is super compelling, actually, because it is an interesting way to solve issues with government, issues with censorship, issues with blocking slash bullying slash ways to control what the consumer experience is. Blue Sky actually has a noble solve for this, which is to put more of that control into the hands of users themselves and getting Twitter out of the way for making some of those decisions. So I think that's super compelling. That said, Do I think a fully decentralized like if you take it all the way, it's fully decentralized and that will be interesting. There were the web two version of this at Twitter certainly was the API, which was controlled but allowing third parties to essentially build different UIs on top of it. There were many reasons why Twitter ultimately started to tamp down on the use of API for competitive situations. It'll be interesting to see what happens with with Blue Sky.
5: Someone who's involved in kind of some of those Decisions back then that now, five, six, seven, eight years, whatever it is later, people are using as examples for why decentralization matters. What's your take on just the Web 2 versus Web 3 thing? Is there actually a Web 2 versus Web 3? Why can't we all just get along?
3: Uh, I don't remember. It's hard to remember what Web 2 was and wasn't. Although, some of the, if you go back and read even some of the original Web 2, like O'Reilly's writing around some of the early, Web2 stuff. Some of the concepts are there, but just improved with Web3. A lot of focus, for example, on the community itself. It is kind of interesting actually now thinking through it, even the some of these platforms like Twitter, like Discord, where a lot of the community is actually happening around some of the NFT work part of Web3. Those are still pretty centralized platforms itself. I also think the work that Twitter has described that they're doing around, for example, NFTs in people's profiles or wallets that will launch this year. And I think that's going to be super meaningful in terms of moving the market forward in a pretty meaningful way. It's it's kind of connecting, bringing identity a little bit closer to Twitter, your wallet identity and your Twitter identity getting closer.
0: Let's talk about this. You know, it seems like that Twitter actually, for many reasons, pseudonymous accounts have done pretty well as they've gone from this web two to web three. Maybe they're stuck in this web two and a half sort of thing. And back, you did this Twitter spaces with bored Elon Musk. He's got millions of followers. No one knows who he is. Can
2: I interrupt you here, Dan? Hold on a second. Oh my
0: goodness. Can you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Okay. You talk about Twitter spaces all the time and that's <laughs> yeah. cool. We love Twitter, but you should be doing this on Clubhouse too. Are you on Clubhouse?
0: Wait, wait. Moxie Ventures actually is an early investor in Clubhouse. And I will say this, wait, coincidental. Oh, we gotta give a shout. I think I think probably the first time I ever saw Packy was probably on a clubhouse early 2021 or mid 2021 does that make sense if it really feels like actually let's it's worth taking a step back Clubhouse really started a lot of these communities before they kind of moved to discord
5: I remember one in particular so I think clubhouse was super related to this whole conversation this is where people were having those conversations. While Andreessen was getting into Web3, they were also getting into and promoting the hell out of Clubhouse. And so there was a lot of crossover stuff there that was happening uh, because of that. And then a bunch of organic stuff. So I remember talking to one gaming entrepreneur in Web3. One of the people who really introduced me to the whole world in early 2021, late 2020, who was like, dude, I think I found the new channel. I've been in this Clubhouse room for... 24 hours in a row. We had a peak of 1,200 people here just kind of talking about the future of the open metaverse and Web3 and gaming and blah, blah, blah. And then you know, that persisted. I think he had that community going for months and I think still might be going. I think a lot of those early communities formed around people being stuck inside and needing a place to talk. So I think a lot of the things that propelled Web3, people being stuck inside and bored and all of that propelled Clubhouse and the two happened at the same time.
0: Packy, you did a deep dive on Discord and you were just talking about how you've been spending a lot of time on Discord. Are these going to be separate platforms? One of the things that I think is really interesting about Twitter, and you kind of correct me over DM when I was on CNBC's Fast Money every once in a while, you'd hear something stupid out of my mouth and you'd be like, no, 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 dude, or something like that. But my belief is always that these really have to be part of like larger platforms. And so that goes to further centralization in a way. Are we beyond that? Is that never going to happen? Packy's like shaking his head, never going to happen.
5: No, no, not never gonna happen. It doesn't make any sense. And Adam can shit on this idea, but I want Twitter and Discord to merge. Something better needs to happen when you get to your Twitter profile. It's like just such wasted real estate, and to have that be a portal into other worlds, like product-wise, I would love for that to happen.
3: Well, at Twitter for sure, and likely Discord later. Although Discord was trying this, and I think the community freaked out. the The beginning of being able to co- connect your wallet, displaying some of the assets that you own in your wallet in your profile, and then ultimately using that to help drive further conversation and connection is going to be a reality in all these platforms pretty quickly. It is going to further, I think, a bunch of the work in the NFT space. What's happening in the Discords right now is pretty compelling. I was a light Discord user in 2019 and 2020, super heavy Discord user in 2021. And so it really was a sea change for me personally. When...
5: Jason Sachan announced that they were just kind of put that screenshot up of them integrating with the wallet. That was in a reply to a tweet about the article that we wrote on Discord. So it was in my replies. I have never seen an angrier group of people in my, I I, I never mute conversations. I just had to mute the conversation. It was every second there were five new tweets coming in with people just incredibly pissed off at, at them for wanting to even think about touching anything Web3.
3: This same thing has happened actually in the gaming space as well. There's been a number of AAA top tier title publishers who have announced that they're going to do something Web3 adjacent and the communities actually push back and then they go, oh, no, 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 we're not. We're actually not going to bring you know, that technology into, into the game. It's mostly been a pushback actually around NFTs right now.
5: On the surface, it feels like a natural thing that the gaming community would want to own the skins that they bought in Fortnite. They'd want to own that and be able to take it with them anywhere. But there has been a ton of pushback from
3: the community. What's like the thrust of the, the argument from gamers? I think the thrust is that this is a unnecessary cash grab, essentially, on from the publisher. And that's the critique. At the same time, they do operate in-game items that you can buy. And so part of the advantage of some of these digital assets is that you can actually take it out of the game, uh, trade it, pass it to on a person-to-person basis outside of the walls or the confines of of the actual publisher themselves. But I think from the community standpoint, they're looking at it as more of a economic driver for the publisher, but maybe not to the benefit of the player.
5: Makes sense. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens? It feels like a lot of games are being developed on Solana right now or kind of mimicking what Axie did and doing the kind of Ronin chains, so and maybe being developed on something like Planetarium will spin up your own L1 for your game or somewhere where it's not Ethereum. I think the gas is probably just one of those things that absolutely kills people. And so you have to have high value items and you don't want to have to spend $200 to buy something. I wonder what happens though when a transaction costs a cent and you can therefore do dollar items in games if that goes away every time.
3: Yeah, it's crazy. I saw, and I may get this number wrong, the Chainalysis report for 2021 said something like $41 billion worth of NFTs were traded in 2021. The question, of course, then is what was spent on gas or how much of that was spent on gas. And so gas for sure is a inhibitor for the market. It will be interesting as as technology continues to evolve or people move to some of these other chains, whether cheaper gas fees ultimately will drive the market faster, whether that's a in 2022 or beyond, whether that's a good tailwind or uh, demand, essentially. So I
5: think this is a good spot to talk about something I know we're both interested in, Maybe music as a stepping stone, and then just the broader universe of what NFTs can do. Let's start with music. What are you excited about with music NFTs? I think
3: it's music in particular is the perfect use of blockchain, specifically royalties in music that promises that by adding a level of transparency and accountability, that ultimately blockchain technology will help identify and allocate. Credit where it's due based on essentially who owns what in the in the ledger, and so January 11th, NAS will be offering a way for fans to essentially invest in the royalties on two tracks: Ultra Black and Rare, which are two top tier titles from him. He's going to be offering a set of tokens for each and opening it up for sale. Royal's the platform that's co-founded by Justin Blau was backed by the chain smokers, Nas, Logic, Kaigo, and a bunch more. So you got to assume that all tracks from each one of those artists are going to be coming to the platform as well. Something like $250 million worth of payments that have been earned, but actually not distributed to the rightful payee. So this solves the problem of unallocated funds. It solves the problem of allocation by putting it and leveraging the ledger. So I think this is a really interesting one because it basically once you've made these assets easily reportable and uh, visible, that you can now trade and there's going to be a real market that's going to emerge from this platform. I'm not an investor. I just, I think it's super compelling. I think as a Justin Blackwood on a podcast, something along the lines of, is
5: every song worth a third of a cent to everybody? And so I, I think that that's one of the interesting things that a lot of these music NFT platforms are trying to solve is just filling out under kind of the demand curve that not everybody has the same demand for every song. Some people are willing to pay an ETH to be able to have a conversation with the artist and have their comment kind of front and center, like as if it were in SoundCloud and you could be like the only comment and get their back catalog and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I think music is a, a super compelling one.
3: Packy, do you think royalties is an interesting play for this, or is there some other element of music that you're getting excited about? I think there's a bunch, frankly, and I think probably over time,
5: they all converge. And so it's maybe trying to get to the same place ultimately where royalties are involved and communities involved and all this is happening. And I think people are going from different routes. I'm personally an investor in one called Sound, which does daily drops of one song per artist. But instead of selling to one person, which some platforms do, they'll sell to 25 people or 100 people form a community. I bought one of them for a band called Marion Hill and they started a Telegram group with everybody who purchased the song and you get kicked out if you if you sell. There's been a robust secondary market so these things are selling out in 30 seconds for 0.1 ETH, but the secondary trades are 1 ETH. So I mean like the artist then kind of continues to make 0.1 ETH every time the song is sold, which I think is really really interesting because they put out a stat the other day that the two hundred thousand dollars that they paid out to artists in the first month is equivalent to sixty million streams of these songs. I think it's just like important to keep in mind how little even pretty popular artists are making on on streaming platforms and so to be able to match them with their biggest fans. I think that's a really interesting opportunity. There's some on chain composition stuff which I think is really- interesting. there's a bunch of experimentation I think in the whole space is, is really fun, but I think probably royalties and and kind of fan communities are two of the more interesting spots to start.
3: Just thinking through all the conversation that we've just had, specifically around NFTs, just going back to the Chinalysis report. So $41 billion spent on NFTs in 2021, but less than 500,000 wallets actually hold NFTs. So I'm curious for everybody, does that make you bullish about what's ahead because it's so few and there's nowhere to go but up? Or are you more skeptical that actually it's really a small amount of money that's changing hands and this feels very Ponzi-esque? Packy, what do you say?
5: It's a good question. I'm of course gonna say that I think we're early, that you know, big platforms are gonna start to get into it, big brands are starting to to get into it. I think the NFL is coming soon. There's a bunch of stuff happening that I think is gonna bring on more mainstream people. It's amazing to me when you talk to these like big NFT collectors that are hiding behind PFPs and synonymous names and all of that, how many of them started with Top Shot? You know, started with this like pretty centralized experience. And so I think, you know, like the more these kind of on-ramp experiences start happening, the more people start automatically kind of getting NFTs when they go to a game. I think that there's going to be a lot of these on-ramps that then bring more people into the space. And then I think there's this whole other world of things. Like today I was talking to somebody who was doing... NFT for medical research IP. And I've you know invested in a company that's doing the data layer for farms, the different data layers that they have as a separate set of NFTs that you can use to finance kind of green initiatives on the farm. So there's just a bunch of stuff happening that will not look like art, but that I think will make people from all walks of life interact with NFTs. So to me, that's bullish. That was a long answer.
0: Wait, wait, Packy. I think I just saw Katie's eyes light up when you said data layered on farms. Is that something, Katie, uh, in the NFT space you'd be interested in? And and I know in some of the areas that you're focused on, does it even come up? Is is NFT even there? And to Adam's point, I mean, when you think about it, 500,000 wallets, when you look at some of the early innovations in Web 1 and Web 2, that literally was, it seemed big at the time, and now it's just like a rounding error. Are these things that are even finding their way into your purview yet, Katie?
2: Yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot. It's interesting, 500,000 wallets is a reasonable number, but it's probably a far fewer number of people that are actually engaging and active, right? So we're still in the earliest of days and there's still a lot of ways that the technology can become a lot more user friendly to be able to attract not even the power users, <laughs> but the, the mainstream users. So I, I think it's really early. I think that there's a lot of opportunity I am biased because I do think that there are bigger opportunities and bigger or more urgent problems such as climate protection, but I still think it's a, a ripe area of investment and building.
5: But I think a lot of the stuff that Katie's doing, I was reading our friend Nikhil Basu Trevetti's Next Big Thing in 2022, Katie's. I'm going to quote you here, said, the next big thing is climate tech is the most important and biggest opportunity for investors we'll see climate unicorns begin to emerge and the most promising innovations will come from outside the US, particularly in emerging markets. That's an area, I mean, I think probably every kind of idiot, young emerging manager like me listened to the Kursaka on Harry Stebbing's podcast and was like, oh, climate, climate, climate. After Kleiner Perkins took a total bath on the climate fund and now is starting to come back and John Doris is on the tour talking about how actually there's some good investments in there. But like, that feels like Maybe not even weird anymore at this point, certainly kind of one of the next areas that people are looking at that I'm certainly wanting to learn more about. Katie, where should I start? If I'm trying to get the 101, where do I start?
2: You know who's done an amazing job is Jason Jacobs with My Climate Journey. And he has created this community of investors, operators, entrepreneurs. It's a Slack channel. He has a podcast and he has a fund and all these great things. And really trying to elevate people's understanding What's so magical about our businesses, frankly, if you're in crypto, if you're in climate, it's not like people have 10, 20 years of experience. You can just start where you are and learn. And there's a community of people who are just going to make you better and stronger, no matter what it is. But I think that's particularly true for both climate and crypto. So big plug for Jason Jacobs. He's the most amazing guy. He has an amazing team. And my climate journey has done the best job, in my opinion. Also, Terra.do is a climate community, kind of a climate camp. I reached out to um, the team when I told them I felt like I had a fifth grade understanding of climate science, and they brought me to maybe 10th grade. So that's, that's a plus.
5: <laughs> that's, that's very good. You mentioned the climate unicorn. What comes to mind when I say climate unicorn? Like, What's the company that we're going to be hearing about in the next year as kind of the big breakout client, climate success?
2: I will share two that are in our portfolio at Moxie Ventures and one that got away. So the one that got away is Watershed, which I think is doing X-Stripe engineers, really strong team, trying to make it easier for people to measure their carbon and especially businesses. And then the two that are in our portfolio, one is I talked about earlier in this podcast called Overstory, which is AI for vegetation management, helping Utilities and companies and even land managers understand which of their property assets property assets are at risk of fire or any kind of natural disaster. And then the other one, to Bain's point about being contrarian, is um, we, we're announcing it here. It's called BossiGo, which is electric buses in Africa. And it is very hard because it is hardware, it's Africa, there are a lot of uncertainties, but we believe that the time for electric vehicles, and electric buses, it's now, it's available. Kenya and East Africa have a surplus of solar and wind power, and so they can make it cheaper, easier, and faster for these bus providers to offer a great service to the community. So, we may not be a unicorn next year, but I believe it will be a unicorn at some point soon. All
0: right. Well, listen, you guys are three of my favorite people in tech. You're three of my favorite people just IRL here. So, I really appreciate you guys coming and joining me, OK Computer, and I wish you all a great 2022.
1: With CME Group's micro sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros.
0: Okay, we're back. I'm here with Cleo Abram, my friend, independent video journalist and contributor to OK Computer. She's been on the pod before and she's joining us today because she's got a big announcement to make.
4: Hey, I am really excited to be here. My big announcement is that I, for a long time, have been a video producer at Vox and I just decided to go independent and launch my own show on YouTube and TikTok. The show is going to be deep dives into technology that I think could really improve the world, things that could be huge if they come true. And it's called Huge If True.
0: I love it. Okay. Well, here's the deal. So you've been a journalist now for over five years, producing video on really predominantly tech and stories as it relates to the economy. Why tech? Why now? And why focused on this optimistic bent? Do you feel like there is too much pessimism in the coverage of technology out there right now?
4: I do. I do. And I think that it's there for a good reason. My feeling is that an optimistic approach is a good addition to the way in which we're talking about technology right now. I subscribe to a lot of deep, rigorous investigative journalism that is pointing out the many abuses that are going on in technology right now. And those resources and those kinds of journalism, I think, are crucial. What I'm proposing and what I'm trying to do is something that helps us envision how we could participate in the creation of technology so that it could go right for more people in the future, so that we can be a part of the conversation about how a technology gets used and how it works in a way that is more collaborative than, I don't know, frankly, the way that it's felt in the past where Mark Zuckerberg and the people that he chooses are making decisions about the way in which we're all going to use the communications technology. So I think that doing the exercise as a journalist of imagining what could go right in a rigorous way where we acknowledge the challenges that might happen in our effort to get there helps us envision a world that we could all build together in a better way. So I think that actually the end result is evaluating our potential futures and understanding what we're sacrificing if we don't choose to explore a technology. So a lot of this depends on what stories you choose. And I am focusing primarily on clean energy, on longevity, on potentially Web3, we'll see. I gotta map out what the vision is there. Some of my questions are unanswered. And just really exploring what are the ways in which people are proposing big visions for the future.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting. You mentioned that term journalistically rigorous, and I think that's really important. When you think about it as being an independent journalist now, you have the ability to kind of go in the directions that you want to go, and they don't have the incentives for clickbait or for whatever. And I'm not saying that that went on at Vox by any means of anything. Vox is actually on the flip side of that. They're actually breaking down a lot of the barriers, a lot of the reasons why people are clicking on stories that they think are going to be interesting because they're going to be excited, and they're saying, no, 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 this is the way it really goes on here. Speak to me a little bit about The reception that you've gotten. You launched this trailer on YouTube. You put it on Twitter. I know that you have a huge following on TikTok. I was watching it all on Monday when you released it, and it was just overwhelmingly positive. It was just amazing. Tell me what that meant to you.
4: I mean, listen, launch day went way better than I thought it would. I'm pretty thrilled, and I think that it reflects that people want something like this to add to their media diet. I think that people were feeling pretty overwhelmed and pretty pessimistic, and And are excited about something to add that might offer them a perspective on the future that um, could be more positive. I think it also has to do with the fact that I went independent to do it. Something about the combination of rooting for an individual and also someone who is proposing to share with you news that might make you feel a little bit less depressed is resonating a lot. And I'm just really happy that people seem to like it and seem to be along for the ride with me in, in creating something new.
0: Well, I can't wait for it. When you think about just kind of the narratives that are around tech, they're generally pretty pessimistic. And it was really exciting to see just the response that you got on tech Twitter, if you will. And you know, it's funny because you're on OK Computer. You know, the title of this podcast is a play on Radiohead's OK Computer, an album that came out in 1997. I remember reading when we came up with the name for the podcast, it was an article in Rolling Stone. It was talking about that. it was the 20th anniversary of that album that came out in 1997. And here's a quote. And I think this is really interesting. It said, the album is largely understood as a record about how unchecked consumerism and over-reliance on technology can lead to automation and eventually alienation from ourselves and from one another. And it almost feels like we're there. And, you know, in your trailer, You kind of said this is kind of like the reverse Black Mirror, you know, the show on Netflix. And so when I think about OK Computer, the album, I was like, oh my goodness, Radiohead wrote the soundtrack for Black Mirror 15 years before the show ever came out. But you want to do the opposite here.
4: One thing that I've noticed in my time on TikTok is that a lot of people feel very nervous about the future. They feel like the world is going to be worse in 20, 30, 50 years. I posted a video about my decision whether or not to have kids. And I just got an overwhelming response from young people saying, I don't think that I'm going to be able to have children because the world is going to get worse. And it wasn't just climate change. It was of their financial future and political nihilism and all kinds of other things wrapped up into one. And I just think that as a journalist, I bear some responsibility for how I present visions of the future. And I want to be one source that can potentially offer a way that they could Spend their energy and help make something that they're excited about. I think if I point out a clean energy technology that they find interesting, maybe they'll go work on it. Maybe they'll study something. I just think it is totally reasonable why young people feel so pessimistic about the future. I just want to be a part of offering something that they might see and feel differently about.
0: Well, listen, you're an amazing storyteller, and I'm really looking forward to Huge If True. Can you tell our listeners where they can find it?
4: Yeah, they can find it on YouTube or TikTok. If you search my name. Cleo Abram on either one of those channels, you'll find me.
0: All right. Well, Cleo, we can't wait to have you back and hear about your first drop when it comes and really maybe help incubate some new stories here. So thanks a lot, Cleo. We wish you the best of luck with is True.
4: Talk to you soon. I can't wait to ask all the folks at OK Computer about all my questions about tech.
0: If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.